I V M. What is it like to be a foreign correspondent in India? Do you write for your global readership or for Indian audiences? And back home, how are crony capitalism and corruption evolving in India? James Crabtree joins us on the Pragati podcast to tell us all about it. Welcome to the Pragati podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics, and international relations. We are your hosts, Hamsini Hariharan and Pavan Srinath. James Crabtree is the author of The Billionaire Raj: A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. He is an associate professor of practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore. From 2011 to 16, he was the Mumbai bureau chief for the Financial Times. James Crabtree is able to join us on the Pragati podcast as he is here in town for the Bangalore Literature Festival. We'll be back with the Pragati podcast after this short break. Hello, hello, hello! Welcome to another week on IVM Podcast. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. Please, please, please. We're IVM Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This week on Cyrus says Cyrus talks to business advisor and sommelier Cecilia Oldene. Cyrus learns some wine etiquette, and they do a wine tasting on the podcast. Vartalab is back with a brand new season. Akash and Navin sit down with producer Janam to recap some of their favorite moments from season one and give you a glimpse of some of the fun new conversations they have in store for season two. On the Pragati podcast, Pawan and China expert Manoj Kevalramani dispel major myths about China and the Chinese government. On Pesa Vesa, we have a festive special episode with Hansi Merotra, who gives some truly valuable advice on how to make better financial decisions. On the latest episode of Crocs Tales, tune into the last two parts of Story Nine, featuring a bully, a coward, and a girl with a neat twist. And guys, remember, we need you to spread the word about podcasting. It's one of the most important things you can do to help us out. Let your friends know if there's a podcast episode that you like that you think that they would like. Please, please, please do spread the word. And with that, let's continue on with your show. Welcome back. Hi, James. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here in Bangalore. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Um, James, I want to start off by asking a few questions about being a foreign correspondent in India. I don't think enough of us here understand the role uh, of a foreign correspondent and the head of a bureau of a respected um, international publication like the Financial Times. So, could you tell us a little about when you came here in 2011? What would your mandate have been like? What was your team like, and so on? So I was the Mumbai bureau chief for the Financial Times, the British-based global business newspaper, the the one, the, the pink one. Um, and so I arrived in two thousand and eleven. Um, and being a foreign correspondent in India is, at one level, a little less glamorous than maybe you're you're making it out to be. I mean, so I um, was the head of the Mumbai bureau, but we at that time had a tiny office um, on the fourth floor of a rickety old building in South Mumbai above a sari shop. And in, if you say we have a team, I mean there were two or maybe three of us. So they're fairly small operations. I mean, some of the news wires, Reuters and Bloomberg, have very large teams. But but if you look at the others, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, they're relatively small operations. And so what you're trying to do is take stories from India. In my case, almost all business stories. So I was writing about business and finance and banking. I used to come to Bangalore a lot since we're here in Bangalore because I wrote about the tech sector and startups, and you're trying to find a way of explaining those to a foreign audience that might be interested in India but might not know very much about it. And I mean, it's a fantastic job. 
I, I haven't always been a foreign correspondent, but I always wanted to be one because in a sense, it's a job. You get to turn up in a foreign country. You get to ask people lots of questions about what's going on. You get to go and see the country, meet its, uh, you know, its decision makers, its politicians and its business people. And you get paid to do that. So it's an extraordinary privilege. And India is a fantastic place to be a foreign correspondent. It's one of the dream postings that people in my position have. The few people I've had a chance to talk to in the past were, I think, by and large based in Delhi, because I guess the other half of the coverage happens with all the political developments in Delhi. Uh, how different was your lens, you think, into India, given that you were based in Mumbai and traveling to Bangalore and elsewhere rather than primarily based in Delhi? Yeah, I think if you're typically, if if you're a foreign media institution that only has one person in India, then you tend to put them in Delhi. Uh, but if you're covering business, as you would be for the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal, it's very important to have a, a presence in Mumbai. And it does give you a different perspective. So I turned up and from the start, I was covering the conglomerates and the banks, learning about India's tycoons, trying to see where the money was going. And in a sense, I think the end of this, having ended up doing what some foreign correspondents do and writing a, a book about India, then the fact that I wrote that book from the perspective of having lived in Mumbai and made it a book about the changing role of India's business elite and the characters within it. Um, that was one of the things that gave me some confidence to write a book because it wasn't just another foreigner turning up and living in Delhi and writing about what the prime minister had been up to and about politics in the capital, as it were. There are lots of challenges with journalism everywhere, right? So there are challenges of access, there are challenges of getting the right stories. So how different is it when uh, you're wearing the Financial Times hat as opposed to a you know, Times of India, Indian Express, you know, Deccan Herald type of hat in India and trying to meet people and trying to get uh, them to speak to you and give you what was hopefully the truth. Well, so it's slightly hard for me to say because I've never been in the other position. I mean, what I can say is that when you turn up for a top tier global media institution, then India is a very welcoming place. And so I thought that I got fantastic access uh, throughout my time in India. Um, that can be to uh, business people, which is primarily what I was writing about, but it's also in politics. I mean, it, it, there is a limit to this. It's quite hard to see the prime minister and it's quite hard to see Mukesh Ambani, you know, the, the most powerful politician and the richest man in the country. But basically everybody else, um, if I wanted to, and if I, you know, was determined to do it, then I could find a way to interview most of the powerful people. And that wasn't anything to do with me. That was because people were willing to talk to a newspaper like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, or in my case, the FT. Um, what I've often said is that if you compare India to China in particular, but also to countries in East Asia, then one of the great advantages of being a foreign correspondent in India is that India is a fairly talkative country. I mean, it's a, almost a trope that, you know, you have Amartya Sen's book, The Argumentative Indian, this notion that Indians are kind of talkative by their nature. But there's something to this that the Indian elite is very global, um, obviously speaks English. It's quite cosmocratic in its outlook. Um, often the, the prosperous business owners, you know, they own property in London, they send their children to uh, schools in the United States. Now, some of that is true in China as well. But there's a certain outwardness um, to the Indian elite that simply isn't true 
um, according to colleagues of mine in China. And so in a sense, a combination of the fact that you are lucky enough to turn up with one of these global media brands behind you, and then a country like India, which generally is, is an open society, means that India is a really wonderful place to be um, a foreign correspondent. Now, that's not to say that there aren't challenges. But I think if I look at the book that I wrote, The Billionaire Raj, um, much of what is good about that book comes from the fact that I just got to meet a lot of these interesting people and, and, you know, ask them questions and, you know, paint a picture of what they were like. I don't think I could have done that if I lived in China. It would have had to be in a very different kind of book. You are writing for the readership of the Financial Times, but in a sense, you're also writing and your writing is getting read by Indians and Indian policymakers and so on, right? Is there a dynamic there that plays out? Um, one example from Simon Denner at the Washington Post comes to mind in 2012. I think he wrote this uh, article about how, you know, the prime minister then Manmohan Singh uh, will likely be a tragic figure who goes down in history as a failure. And that seemed to wake the prime minister up in a certain sense. And he actually reacted. And that was not something that many others were able to get a prime minister then to do. Uh, so do you think that way, uh, because it's a respected publication like the FT, which a lot of people read, people in India will also pay attention? I mean, that's a complicated question. I mean, if you're asking, do foreign correspondents somehow feel that they have a a special responsibility. Um, no, I'm not asking that. <laughs> well, I mean, so let me try and answer it this way. It, it is the case that you're writing for dual audiences. And so sometimes people in India, I think, feel that the foreign press get that balance wrong. That's less true in finance, but in general news reporting, for instance, there's this feeling that foreign journalists turn up and want to write stories uh, that have a certain kind of Indian color to them, stories about elephants and animals. Right. Equally, around the time that there was the spate of incidents of sexual violence, there was a sense that foreign correspondents covered almost to a fault um, instances of rape. Um, now, people weren't really saying that it's wrong to do that. They, they were saying that in a sense, the foreign media leaps on problem stories, things that are wrong, but doesn't give commensurate weight to things that are going right. And I suppose there's there's some truth in that. Um, you know, in British journalism, you have a phrase, a rather unfortunate phrase of if it bleeds, it leads, which basically means that, you know, you write about bad news, you don't write about good news. And so I can see that there may be a certain frustration amongst Indian policymakers that the foreign correspondents tend to write about things that are problematic, things that are not working. If you're sitting there in North Block in Delhi, then you have the foreign media, you know, honing in on whatever problem is happening, not really writing very much about what you've achieved. I suppose that's true. But I think that that kind of comes with the territory. And I, to be honest, I think that's exactly how the Indian media works um, in its own way as well. So that's not to say that the foreign media is perfect. As I say, the the foreign media in general, there's very few foreign journalists. They don't have huge amounts of money. They don't have generally the ability to go and do long investigative work. I mean, I think you have to be to some degree realistic about the audiences that you have to talk to and the sort of the foreign media is capable of doing. 
I completely agree with you on that. I think there's this picture that sometimes gets painted that foreign media is out to get us. And so therefore, especially I think in the last few years, we are seeing a little more of that. I think BBC's coverage of a lot of things in India has been criticized heavily. I don't necessarily subscribe to what's happening in NotBlock. But what to me is more interesting is when you're trying to explain India to a British audience or a foreign audience, you would simplify things in a certain way, you would make certain metaphors and, you know, comparisons that would make it more easy for a foreign reader to understand. And sometimes that, you know, people in India can see that as, oh, when you're painting a caricature, or sometimes there's this orientalism that sort of comes in, right, with the elephants and other things, which can be a challenge. So how do you take such criticism? I mean, how much of that do you see as valid and let me, I mean, it seems to me that there's a contradictory view amongst the Indian establishment about the role of foreign journalists, that you're right, that on the one hand, there's a sense, this is often, but not exclusively to be found on the political right, that the foreign journalists are out to get us, that the foreign journalists are all sort of liberal, secular, um, you know, they don't much like Prime Minister Modi, this is the view. Um, and so you hear that a lot. Um, but there's actually another view as well, which the the liberal left, your, your kind of classic cliched sort of metropolitan Delhi and South Mumbai liberal elite, because they often have a certain view of the way the Indian media operates, they then have these quite high expectations of what the foreign media should be able to do, um, in a sense, maybe playing a role that the local media sometimes does not play. And they then criticize the foreign media from a different point of view of saying, in a sense, you know, you're not doing what you should be doing. You know, we, we need your sort of help and support somehow. And I don't think, I think either of those is entirely fair, but I, I understand where they come from. I mean, your question was about this issue of twin audiences. And I suppose, I mean, if you want to understand where foreign correspondents are coming from, you know, they have their loyalty to their readers, ultimately, the people who pay their you know, their wages. But on a day-to-day -day basis, you also have to sort of satisfy your editors. My editors are in London and Hong Kong. If you're writing for the New York Times, your editors are in New York. And so it's a balance between, you know, trying to say the right thing, pick important stories that resonate both in India and abroad. Um, you know, your audience is primarily global, but also to some degree here. And also making sure that you're editors are not um, unhappy with you. And so that, that balance um, isn't always easy. So James, you've worked in Washington, D.C., in London. You've uh, worked with the, as a policy advisor with uh, the British government and the prime minister's office. And after that, you've been editing. You've been working in journalism in the U.K. before you came to India. How did you prepare for this role? I mean, how did you think about uh, coming to India and taking up this position? What was that uh, journey like? I mean, to be honest with you, I think this is probably a dirty secret amongst many foreign correspondents. You don't do very much preparation at all. I mean, you, so I, it's not entirely true. I mean, my wife and I took Hindi lessons, which in the end we got a certain way with and then gave up because we realized that most people that we interacted with in Mumbai and within the kind of Indian upper strata all spoke English. And so you never really needed to speak Hindi. And, and you know, I read, um, you know, I read Ram Guha's India after Gandhi and a couple of other books. And I, but, but in the end, you know, you don't have that long to prepare. I mean, I, I probably, it's probably four months or something between getting the job um, in Mumbai and then turning up in November of 2011. And so, you know, what your skill is as a foreign correspondent, I mean, obviously most foreign correspondents are 
fairly sort of bright, personable people, curious. Um, but in the end, you turn up and you find clever people to explain to you what's going on. And so most of your learning happens on the job. Um, and then even then, the I mean, India is a vast and complicated country. And so I, I wouldn't end up knowing quite a lot about some narrow areas like the tech sector or mining, but not very much about other areas. And so that was partly the impetus at the end of wanting to write a book that I had all of these still had all these rather half formed ideas. There were characters I was interested in. One example I often give is Jayalalita, the chief minister of Tamil Nadu, now deceased, who I thought was a fascinating figure. I never really got to write about. And so there were lots of areas that you think, oh, that's interesting. And you never actually got to write about it. And in the end, that was part of the motivation for deciding to write a book about India, because I had all of these ideas rattling around in my head that I had never learned about before I arrived and then had never actually got to write about when I was here. Could you share a few stories that you worked on while here that that you had a lot of fun with that were very exciting um, while you were here? I know you've written a lot on everything from covering uh Ola and other tech companies in Bangalore or various things that were happening in Mumbai. Um, I know that you've had uh, some great lunch with FD, uh, mm. interviews with various people, anything that you had a lot of fun with. I mean, it's very hard to pick one thing. Um, I mean, typically the thing that is most fun is when you get to go out of the place that you normally work. So, you know, day to day, I lived in Mumbai, and I traveled around the city, you know, meeting people who worked in institutions, whether they were bankers or brokers, heads of companies. Um, but the most memorable things tended to be when you got to go out and do reporting out in the, the countryside. I mean, I pick one since we're in Karnataka. Um, I got to do various bits and bobs on the iron ore scandal that broke uh, during the mid to late 2000s and was in a sense trying to be remedied by the legal system when I turned up in India, so 2012, 2013. Um, and so that was a great story to cover and it took me to places that I'd never been before. So I would go to Goa, for instance, and meet iron ore miners, go and see some of these places, try and understand what exactly it was that um, had caused this enormous boom in iron ore prices and then the associated problems of illegal mining that had come with it. And and although this was a relatively minor story for the FT, it didn't have huge global companies attached to it. I mean, one, there was Vedanta, which was a company that the FT cared about because it was listed in London. And so it sort of crossed that threshold of being a globally significant company. But I just thought this, along with all manner of other of these stories about, in a sense, how um, India's public administration was managing or sometimes failing to cope with changes in the sort of underlying system of capitalism, I just thought this was completely fascinating. And in a sense, when you write about that for the FT, you know, you write a 500-word news story, or maybe if you're lucky, a seven, 800-word feature, maybe if you're very lucky, a magazine story, but that's it. And again, that in a sense was the motivation for trying to put some of this into a longer form in the book that I never really thought I, in the the daily news format, had the, the sort of space to, to write about some of these things with the appropriate level of complexity. Uh, and so that was in a sense why I wanted to write more about it. We'll be back with James Crabtree after this short break. Do you have a night routine? Well, everyone has one. And the to-do list usually looks like this. Brush your teeth, set that alarm, get into your pajamas and switch off those screens. But here's one more to add to that list. Tune into the Positively Unlimited podcast for a dose of positive action 
and tips on how to build powerful mindsets. Episodes out every Monday on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you tune into podcasts. Welcome back. So coming to your book, um, The Billionaire Raj, I think you allude to the Gilded Age, right, in the uh, title itself, how we might be uh, in such a moment here where you have uh, billionaires who are extremely powerful, who can uh, set the agenda for a lot of policy making, for a, even a lot of media debates and conversations. And uh, and you also are hopeful about what this can transition to. Uh, often uh, we think about maybe, hopefully, we are in an age in India like the United States was in the 1910s and the 1920s, where again you had, you know, the great robber barons who are all getting gentrified in a certain sense and then investing in intellectual institutions and other things, right? So you had the Carnegie Endowment that came out. You had the Rockefellers set up various things. And a lot of the intellectual institutions of the United States around politics, think tanks, and other things were set up in that era in the United States. So in that sense, are you hopeful of the same happening in India? How do you see this transition? How would you describe the current nature of the Indian business elite uh, and India's governance? Yeah, so it wasn't an original idea of mine, but I had read various things even before I came that had described India's moment in the later 2000s as akin to what had happened um, in the United States after the Civil War. So the Gilded Age in the US span from 1865 until maybe the turn of the century. Uh, this was a moment, as you say, of the, the robber barons of Tammany Hall politics. So you had a mixture of extraordinary wealth creation and corruption, crony capitalism, whatever you want to call it. But it was also a, a kind of broader moment that was happening in the United States, as had happened in the United Kingdom half a century before, and as happened in countries of Eastern Asia a century later, which was a move from a poorer agrarian society of yeoman farmers to one that was more urban, uh, that had a larger middle class, that had a you know advanced manufacturing services that was more global. And, and it's, it's although the analogy between India and the US in these periods is very inexact, and I'm not remotely saying that they're the same, um, there were certain similarities. And so in the book, I chart the rise um, of the extraordinary speed and scale of the rise of India's new sort of super wealthy elite. Uh, I talk about the problems of inequality that this has brought and how it comes together with the spate of crony capitalism scandals that began in the mid 2000s and, and in a sense is still going on today. Um, and I think will still be part of India's development story for the foreseeable future. Now, your question was, should there be optimism that in the end, these captains of industry will become more socially responsible. And I suppose you probably can expect that to happen, but you have to remember what happened in the US, uh, which is that this only happened later. So Carnegie, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Jay Gould, these sorts of people, they all had terrible reputations um, at the height of their powers when they were the, the sort of famous robber baron tycoons. It was only later when they reached old age and they were trying to uh, clean up their reputations that they began to set up foundations and give lots of money and set up universities. So I think you can expect this to happen only gradually. Um, but it's not necessarily the case that, um, that you're suddenly going to get 
people doing this immediately. But you see some good signs. I mean, we're sitting here in Bangalore, so um, you have people like Azim Premji, who doesn't really count as a, as a kind of um, tycoon of the sort I feature in my book, but he's set up a large university. You see various other of the Indian tycoon class um, beginning to uh, become uh, more philanthropic in their endeavors. And I suppose insofar as that's happening, then we should welcome that. This can only be a good thing. Crony capitalism is a very large umbrella term that captures a lot of things, right? So what do you see as the trends right now with the equation between business and the government? Like one thing I can think of that was quite common, I think, between the Indian economic liberalization of 1991 and now is sort of many companies creating me-sized loopholes, right? I mean, that where they can operate in a certain business, but really their competitors cannot. And slowly and definitely not surely, some of these loopholes are going away or an investment made in such a loophole gets uncovered three years later, four years later. The fact that these scams came out and some action was taken is also a sign of churn in this, right? So how would you characterize crony capitalism or you, know, you can even call it crony socialism in certain respects, right? Because we still have that government control on many things. I mean, it's a very complicated question. Francis Fukuyama, the political scientist, has he, he sort of studies corruption and says that the move from, uh, I think what he calls a patrimonial society, one that's based on kind of clientelism and favoritism, to um, a state that is neutral between different groups, different people, different businesses, is a more complicated transition than one from a kind of poor to a middle-income country. This is very difficult. So on the one hand, you have... I think you have two things going on at the same time, one of which is optimistic and one which is more complicated. So it's true to say, if you go back to the mid-2000s, that there was a sense in India that the billionaire class had the politicians in their pocket. Um, people worried that India was becoming increasingly like Russia. There was a lot of corruption scandals literally around the cabinet table, the, the famous 2G scam, the mining scam, all of the, the, the season of scams that I talk about in the Billionaire Raj. And to some extent, under Narendra Modi and uh, against the backdrop of 2011's India Against Corruption movement, the worst of that appears to have abated. Um, there have been fewer of those kind of scandals, although there is one at present about um, the fighter jets uh, that your listeners will be well aware of, I'm sure. And so that has given some people the impression that, um, in a sense, this period of India's development is behind it. Um, as you say, loopholes, you know, your nice phrase, me-sized loopholes are being closed. The prime minister has read the riot act. The tycoons are sort of slightly back in their place. The tycoons, in any case, are uh, struggling because of the hangover from that period um, that has left a lot of people with too many bad debts and the banking system in very bad shape. Nonetheless, crony capitalism isn't something that is a, a kind of static phenomenon that only happens at one stage in your development process. If you look around East Asia, which has developed very quickly and very successfully, you'll find that crony capitalism is a sort of um, is a feature, not a bug, of almost all the stages that you go through. So just look at Malaysia at the moment. It's a much richer country than India. And uh, the type of crony capitalism that you see there is no longer uh, people mining illegally uh, or trying to kind of defraud land allocations. But it's a much more sophisticated kind of almost white-collar crime in which people in Malaysia have been taking money out of sovereign wealth funds. 
And so crony capitalism, which the one academic definition I use in the book, which I take from a, a Chinese scholar called Min Xin Pei, is that this is just, just means collusion between the business and political elites. This is a sort of simple way of understanding it. Is something that changes and develops as your economy changes and develops. Um, and it's very difficult to imagine a situation in which it goes away entirely. If you look at the development of Eastern Asia, um, these are very successful, fast developing countries, but they also had lots of corruption. And so I don't think it's realistic to suggest that this is a kind of problem that is going to be solved quickly, something that requires continual action to try and, in a sense, understand and minimize the threat of crony capitalism and, and eventually to drive it out of the system um, as countries like South Korea, to some degree, Singapore, Taiwan have done their best to minimize the role of this and to create you know, a, a state that has high capacity and markets that function well without favoritism. Could you also tell us a little about policymaking that sometimes seems to be agnostic to the business relations? Like, I mean, I'm just looking at something like demonetization done by this government. I... I can't quite link it to collusion, but perhaps complete uh, stupidity on the part of how it was not linked to any evidence. I'd, I'm still trying to figure out what was the real problem that was trying to be solved. I wouldn't at all think about demonetization through the lens of crony capitalism. I mean, crony capitalism tends to be, uh, as you say, you, let's say there are individual areas of policy uh, telecoms would have been one example in the mid-2000s, potentially more recently, um, that you can craft regulations that benefit one company or one set of companies. Or, or often it happens at the local and state level where you are um, giving out patches of land to uh, particular companies. You're setting up public tenders in a way that only one company can right. win or one company has an advantage. There's all sorts of yeah, all mechanisms. All kinds of local by, monopolies. Yeah, and so all on. sorts of things that you can do. I mean, there were all sorts of conspiracy theories about demonetization, but I mean, I think you're right. My, my sense is it was just a crazy idea propagated by people who happened to have the idea, the ear of the prime minister, but who didn't know very much about economics. And it, that idea arrived at a moment in the policymaking process where the prime minister was sort of feeling like he needed to do something big. Um, and I mean, that would be, I don't know that for a fact, but that would be my, my intuition that it was a sort of funny confluence of forces that um, some people with bad ideas managed to get the ear of the prime minister at the moment when he was feeling like now was the time to act. And so the result was a bit of a disaster. But I don't think there was any corruption um, involved. Um, I wouldn't think of it in that way. And something like the GST, how do you see India's capacity at even trying to formulate policies that might be good? Right. So, I mean, the idea of having a common tax framework that combines goods and services such that it makes sense for the modern economy makes sense, right, at a, a certain level. The idea of that you should not have excessive tax competition between states, but instead have a system where compliance is easier, where transaction costs are easier, is something that that by and large has a uh, you know, sound economic sense. So in such cases, how do you see Indian government capacity in uh, being able to execute these things? GST being just one example. Yeah, as you say, the, I mean, GST as an idea is one that has had a huge consensus amongst the policymaking elite for nearly a generation. Um, 
just took a, a while to get all of the pieces in place, I suppose. And, and actually, it's a very good example of the kind of policy that needs to be introduced to push back against certain types of crony capitalism. I mean, one of the definitions of corruption involves the notion of discretion. So the more discretion that is given to policymakers, the more likely it is that a system can be corruptible. And tax is a, is a great example of this, um, where if you have tax systems that allow lots of discretion and lots of local loopholes, then this can be a breeding ground for a certain kind of favoritism or, or corruption. So the liquor industry is a great case in point. Um, here in South India, in, in Karnataka, in Tamil Nadu, the, the liquor industry worked fairly closely, hand in glove with politicians. It is widely known to have funded political parties. It got special tax breaks in return. And so something like the GST, um, although it wasn't tailor made to solve that particular issue by creating a national system that everyone has to fit into, just reduces discretion for policymakers. And, and that um, that is a good thing. The capacity of the Indian state to introduce these kind of reforms I mean, I suppose it's a mixed picture. People have criticized the implementation of the GST. I mean, in the end, you have to get these things through within the bounds of what is politically feasible um, in a democracy. Um, and so this is one of the, you know, the downsides of a democratic system that otherwise I would defend. But, you know, in the end, you can only do what is possible um, with bravery and political imagination. And in the end, if what is possible requires you to have, you know, five levels of tax as opposed to two, um, then, then that's fine as long as you are doing that because that literally is the only thing that is possible. Um, there is no other way of doing it. I, I've never heard anyone suggest that the reason you have different levels within the GST was uh, because of you know outright corruption, um, although it's not impossible that that is true. I mean, I tend to think that Prime Minister and the Finance Minister in pushing this through were simply working within the constraints of a very complicated, plural, decentralized um, Indian political system. So I want to come near the end of our conversation today by talking about, I mean, we, we understand that corruption is a very important issue. Uh, the nature of the equation between the state and businesses is a very important issue. But um, what else do you think uh, will be vital for India in the coming years? How, how do you see this in our journey towards development? One is solving this problem, but as uh, some scholars put it, I mean, corruption can also be the the grease that keeps certain wheels going right at a at a petty level it's corruption arises more when you have dysfunctional governments and you know the simplest example to me is that of getting a driving license and you need to go through those touts to get a driving license of course it's a broken system in india there is no correlation between getting a license to drive and the ability to drive absolutely no correlation. I mean, there is no uh, relationship that you're actually safe on the roads. However, in a system that barely works, this corruption at least helps people get a license or get something. So how do you see that playing out? What else do we think we need to keep in mind? I mean, will the reduction of corruption be sufficient for, say, economic growth and development? Will the reduction of crony capitalism be sufficient uh, for economic growth and development? No, I mean, I think it's a great question. And it's actually something I deal with in the book, specifically the example of driving licenses, where there's interesting academic research on the way that that, that system works in India. But in general, the way people view corruption, where the, the optimal level of corruption in any economy is not zero, uh, typically. Um, and actually, you can see 
exactly what you're talking about, which is not the the micro level of something like a, a driver's license, but at the macro level, it is often the case that very corrupt economies work much better than less corrupt economies. So um, if you look at the south of India as opposed to the north, the scale of corruption simply in terms of its value in Karnataka, Tamil Nadu or Andhra the three largest of the southern industrial states is vastly larger than um, would be true in the north because they're more economically prosperous, they have more businesses, so there's more money to be extorted. But this corruption sits um, alongside much better economic outcomes and also much better social outcomes. And so it's not necessarily the case that high corruption um, is always bad. And that's been true in Eastern Asia as well. Um, so if you look at Malaysia, South Korea, uh, Thailand, you know, there was plenty of crony capitalism, but it was in a sense of a growth enhancing variety. So I think this is one of the, you know, it's one of the paths India is going to have to, uh, to, to chart that in the medium to long term, you want to drive corruption out of your system. Uh, but you don't want to do so, um, in a way that kind of brings everything else juddering to a halt. And in a sense, that's been the story of India over the last, uh, 10 years that, that the anti-corruption movements and anxiety about corruption has broken a number of systems that, that used to work, but they haven't managed to create new ones in their place, which is why industrial investment in India has been so low over the last four or five years. Um, and so this is a, you know, it's a very complicated path and one that India will have to chart. I mean, in terms of other issues, for sure, uh, my book is about a certain slice of the challenges that India looks at. And I suppose I have a residual sense of guilt about the fact that, you know, there are some very critical issues that I deal with either cursorily or not at all. Um, so uh, when I talk about the book, I do try and mention climate change, um, which I don't talk about at all. Urbanization, which I talk about tangentially. And I mean, there are a bunch of other issues. Water would be another one. I mean, it's linked up to climate change um, that get talked about much less often than issues like, you know, economic reforms, what is the current level of growth, but all three of those, I mean, in the end, if India doesn't develop a less carbon intensive growth path than China, then all of us are in huge trouble. Uh, India's urbanization challenge is massive, as you can see, driving through the streets of Bangalore, as I have this morning, um, water is a particular worry. Um, and so there are a range of governance challenges, um, which in a sense I wasn't able to deal with in my book, but which are comparably important to uh, dealing with corruption. But in a sense, the thread that joins them all together, and this is where I conclude the billionaire Raj, is about the importance of state capacity, that if you look at the history of economic development, um, whether you simply go and live as I do now in Singapore, and you look at the example of Eastern Asia, or you read um, books like, um, Asimoglu and Robinson's How Nations Fail. Um, you know, the, the thread that comes through this is that if you want to develop, you need a high capacity, capable state, um, that is able to arbitrate between groups, that is able to implement things like the GST, which is able to analyze problems. And I think that is India's primary challenge across all of these areas, whether it's corruption and crony capitalism, climate change, urbanization, whatever, you need to have uh, a government that works. Um, that is your binding constraint. And so I think that really is the challenge for the, the coming generation. 
Reems, thank you so much for coming on the Pragati podcast. Can we ask if there's a second book in the works or anything else that has caught your fascination that you'll be working on? Well, so I now live in Singapore and I um, sit at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, which is a little bit like that actually learned institution there. So it's a public policy school. So I teach there. Uh, and in a sense, my interest now, having spent some years exploring South Asia, is to do the same for Southeast and East Asia and to, to learn a little bit more about that part of the world. Um, and so whether that's uh, the ongoing trade war or the tentacles of China's Belt and Road, in a sense, I've been looking at some of the more interesting developments in that part of the world. Now, what will come from that? Who knows? Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you for coming on the Pragati podcast. Thank you for staying with us till the end. Don't forget to check out James Crabtree's book, The Billionaire Raj, out in hardcover and on the Amazon Kindle. If you have any questions for us, please write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. And hey, if you like the Pragati podcast, please leave us a rating on iTunes. It will mean a lot to us. Visit our website at thinkpragati.com for your daily dose of brain fodder on all things public policy. You can subscribe to the Pragati podcast on the IVM podcast app or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We're there everywhere. Have you gotten yourself a gym membership and shown up only a few times? Are long working hours cutting your fitness goals short? How about you change things a little? Even a small effort can make a big difference. And I'll tell you how and what exactly. Hi guys, I'm Coach Urmi and on the Kinetic Living Podcast, you can look forward to some interesting stories of people who have changed the way they look at fitness after their kinetic journeys. Episodes out every Wednesday on the IVM app, website and anywhere you get your podcast from. Every week comes a show where three people come together to tell you about stuff they like. A movie, a TV show, a book, and other stuff. Tune in every Monday on the IVM Podcast app to IVM Likes. Batman approves this message. Thank you, Batman.